You're listening to Picturing Home, a podcast production by Kunstkupan Malmo and Malmo University. Picturing Home is a collaborative art project exploring stories of home and migration. You can follow us on Instagram at picturing.home. Welcome home. My name's Erin, and I'm a researcher at Memo University at the School of Arts and Communication. And today I'm joined by Ansar Bakir, project leader of Konskupan and founder of Shakomako. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Picturing Home. Happy to be here. So just a little bit about Picturing Home, um, if people are just tuning in for the first time. So this was meant to be an on-location arts project at Konskupan, but because we are all living through a pandemic, we have taken the whole thing online, which has opened up loads of possibilities for creativity and community building. Last week, we held a session called Writing Home, during which we shared a range of artifacts, songs, and even conversations we recorded about our very complex understanding of what home is. So Ansar, I'm so happy to have you on board today and looking forward to our conversation about your contributions um, to our Writing Home session of Picturing Home. What was your impression of picturing home, being that this was your first time joining us. I mean, uh, I mean, from the onset when we were uh, we were talking about the project and uh, and the sort of initial uh, stages, um, I mean, there. I don't think there's ever been a better time to talk about home. I don't think there's ever been a better time to. <laughs> Uh, really reflect on the centrality that home has in every person's life. It's one of these sort of fundamental and foundational um, stages in a person's life before they can uh, move on to uh, self-actualization. It's the 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 safety, the the the. Yeah, I mean, to, to have the, a, a sense of safety and security, to be able to uh, develop as a human being uh, is, is something that I think a lot of us uh, take for granted. I mean, it was super, super interesting. And, uh, and it, it got me really thinking about what is home. Uh, for me, I have this sort of imaginary home, which I haven't had access to um, all my all my life basically but it's it's a sense of home that's been instilled from in me uh, from my parents being from uh, being refugees from Iraq um, so it, it, it sort of opened the Pandora's box for me uh, and and uh, and made me really really reflect about the concept of home and what we um, and how we create a home because four walls and a, and a roof is it's not necessarily a home. Uh, it could be. It could be a lot. It could be a lot more, or it could be a lot less. But it depends on how you create the space around you and what you fill it and how you fill it with meaning. That's so important. Um, so the first time was really interesting. I mean, I was so so excited to hear everybody's, um, everyone who participates, uh, their take on, on the concept of home and and yeah. I mean, I was really uh, really blown away. 
Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm so glad that that you joined. Um, not least of all because your contribution to the conversation was fantastic. Um, you kind of over the course of our conversation, you were kind of building on the idea of returning home to a place that you've never been and everything that's in, that entails. So I want to listen to a clip right now of um, some of what you said during our session. I went to Iraq too in 2015. Really? Wow. Have you you've been there before? Me? No. That was the first time. Yeah, I've I've been walking around. Wow. Saying I'm Iraqi forever. (laughs) (laughs) And I've never even been to Iraq. Yeah, but what was it like? I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, what that must have been like to have heard about it, you know, your whole life and then go. Yeah, it was special. I mean, I was there for two weeks. Uh, it was a part of my, me and my brother, we got a graduation gift mm. from my aunt. And uh, it was really, really special. It was beautiful. It was, it was also, I mean, I've, I've always described it as I felt the, uh, I felt all human emotions possible during a two-week period like it was all of highs and lows and all you can imagine it was you know intense really 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 intense um because i was feeling all of these things i mean i don't think anybody else was feeling that um i think my brother had probably had a different experience than i did but uh, I mm-hmm. made sure to tell my dad before we left, like, this is a very important trip. Like, we're, this is probably going to define me as a person. Like, this is how important the trip is. So, Ansar, um, just you reflecting on your first time going to Iraq. <laughs> Did it define you the way that you, you thought it would when, when you left for your first journey there? Absolutely. Oh my God, yes. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, it it definitely did define me. I mean, I've I've had this ability to see around around the corner uh, when when I put myself in in these sort of uh, defining moments that I know that what's uh, what's around the corner is of such huge importance and magnitude that it's going to have a profound effect on me um, and that's what uh, what what I also felt in regards to my sort of first trip to uh, to the homeland and usually I put homeland in quotation marks but I don't anymore um, you know a lot of people in the diaspora, not just the Iraqi diaspora, but all Middle Eastern diaspora have this concept of the homeland. You know, if you talk to uh, Algerian uh, or Moroccan or Tunisian uh, third generation um, immigrants in France, they they always talk about the the blad, the 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 homeland. Um, if you talk to Lebanese uh, Lebanese people in in uh, 
in Paris or in London or, 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 or Zurich or anywhere, they always talk about this idea of home and homeland, going back to the homeland during the summers and so on and so forth, uh, meeting family and so um, sorry, I got carried away. <laughs> <laughs> um, did it define you? How did it define you? How did this trip define you? I mean, just just to uh, so um, for our listeners, um, part of my life circles around my my job at uh, Conscript and, and managing the project. Um, all my sort of spare time goes into. Uh, you know, researching uh, contemporary art uh, and artists and culture uh, from the Middle East and North Africa, uh, because I also, you know, founded and is the uh, uh, founded a, a cultural uh, cultural house here in Mamo, which is called Shakomako. Um, and so we do we do different uh, events. Uh, we do also, um, you know, film festivals. We do. Uh, concerts uh, and, and so on and so forth and my whole life has has been about that now and and uh, it started out very uh, you know it started out really small with sort of um, separatist you know uh, queer Arab parties or Middle Eastern parties where we play Middle Eastern music um, and where people uh, who are you know uh, queer or trans people of color from the from the MENA region can you know uh, find a safe a safe space for uh, where they can you know hold hands and and you know kiss their boyfriends and girlfriends or whatever and not feel like they're they're being uh, looked at differently or or so on or or just feel like they are in a safe space where they can enjoy being together and now we're you know we're expanding and we're doing this queer uh, Mina film festival which is live right now. Uh, we just got a huge grant of a hundred thousand uh, that we're gonna do. We're gonna build on the spiritual concert series that brings um, different groups and artists from the Middle East uh, who focuses or play um, who are practitioners of different types of spiritual music from Morocco all the way to to uh, Iran and, you know, even further away to Pakistan and so on and so forth. Um, so it did define me as a person. I, I most certainly found my call and my reason to be here. Like, this is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. It came from this, um, it came from the trip to Iraq, uh, but before that, if we go even further back, there's, there's, I've always felt like this void inside of me, this, uh, this sort of emptiness inside me where I've always felt like I'm a part of a much, much bigger uh, family, a much bigger history, a much bigger heritage um, that I constantly feel that I need to either educate people or defend in my sort of uh, context where I am in Sweden, being reduced to only being an immigrant or uh, being, you know, non-white, non-Swedish, uh, and, you know, insert your own derogatory term, uh, person. Uh, and I, I've always had this, this insatiable need of, 
of learning more and more and more. And I remember I even have my old history book from my high school and there's nothing like we, we, we go from antiquity uh, and we jump thousand years and then end up in the middle ages. Like what happened before the middle ages? Who, who, um, who translated all of these uh, Greek scholarships and made it accessible uh, for and, and put the, the groundwork for the Renaissance? Like, where are all of these people who, 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 were, who contributed to medicine and, 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 and physics and chemistry and, and architecture? Like, the, the huge scientific and cultural and artistic contribution that the Middle East have poured in uh, in history. I mean, there was a time when every scholarly paper was written in Arabic. To, to not find that in my history book, there was only two pages about the Middle East in my history book. And it was at the end of it. And both, both uh, it was, no, it was actually just one page. And it was a full page with two, you know, two uncles in their traditional robes uh, in the desert. So I'm painting the picture. So they're in the desert. There's an oil well burning behind them. Uh, and they're sort of picturing in front of them. And there's like two sentences uh, where it says, two Arab men standing in front of an oil well burning during the second Gulf War. That's it. Like they've literally erased the Middle East um, totally and just like had that picture. And I, and I actually, I was supposed to give that book back to my high school, but I was like, no, I'm going to take this book um, and I'm going to have it uh, here and I'm going to show it to my children and be like, this is the reason why I do what I do. And this is the reason why you need to learn your history so that people don't, and I've used this uh, sort of expression before, so that people don't piss on your head and tell you that it's raining. <laughs> I love, I love that, that turn of phrase. <laughs> but you know, like you, you really like hit on something there. A couple of things that really strike me are that when your history is erased, it is, very challenging it's a very big challenge to feel at home in the world right where your history is constantly being edited out yeah i mean we see it uh everywhere like we when we talk about um you know cultural appropriation when we talk about you know all of a sudden falafel and hummus and tabbouleh all mm -hmm. of a sudden that's like israeli food uh exactly. Uh, it's just like, really? Uh, when did it become that? Uh, and like, you see people doing cookbooks and stuff like that and sort of mischaracterizing and even, uh, you know, making tabula wrong. It's, it's not supposed to have uh, avocados. <laughs> <laughs> there is no such thing as chocolate hummus. Like, no, there's not. It's not. Oh it's my an God. abomination. <laughs> but you know, it also strikes me as like the fact that you feel this need um, to to you felt this need as a as a younger person to educate yourself, and you also feel this need, as you said, to challenge people's assumptions about Iraq, about the region, about immigrants. That is a lot of 
emotional labor as well. Um, and so I wonder how you do it. Like, how do you funnel? How do you keep your energy up? You know, in 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 this sort of situation where you feel like it is upon you to challenge constantly these assumptions and stereotypes, and to you know really bring to the forefront the history that has been erased. That's a big job. I I read this quote somewhere, and it 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 sort of speaks about. Uh, the sort of immigrant uh, experience in the West. Um, and it says, our parents, uh, and I'll paraphrase it, so our parents were tasked with survival. They were tasked with, you know, uh, fleeing and, and going through all the hell that they did to come to safety, which is here in the West, right? Um, but our task we, the kids and children of uh, immigrants or refugees, our task is self-actualization. So we, we've passed the survival stage. Now we are in a different stage. And that stage is about creating spaces and creating knowledge um, and language uh, that is not just accessible to us, but accessible to, to a, a wider uh, a wider audience and also change the narrative, the sort of colonial imaginations and the colonial um, residue and the, 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 the stink of it that is, it, it pertains and premates not just academia and cultural work, but all levels of society and how we deal with the, with the Middle East and also all sort of co uh, former colonies uh, be it in in Asia or in, or the African continent or 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 beyond that, and it's it's our we the diaspora. It's our task to do that um, and to change the discourse so that next time there is, a, you know, a new invasion of of our home countries that there is not just uh, that there are voices ready to to um, shape public opinion, to be able to, to come with a counter narrative to the one that, uh, that we've seen throughout the 90s and even before that uh, shaping public opinion, but also foreign policies in, in countries like the US, Britain, Germany, France, and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and it's, I think, you know, there's different avenues to do that. Um, academia is one, uh, journalism is another, but arts, arts is, is absolutely one of the key, uh, avenues to do that. And, um, yeah, I mean, where do I find my, my, uh, my sort of where, how can I labor this emotional, uh, baggage? Well, I mean, it's, it's what we call the diaspora blues. Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of, uh. It's ingrained in our DNA during this sort of period when our parents uh, fled. Something happened with our DNA. Something changed, and we've become these, you know, the 2.0 of our parents, which is sort of the the next generation of you know hardcore, um, you know. Hardcore people that will not take no for an answer, and we will do everything to sort of crush these structural 
inequalities that uh, that we see throughout society, wherever we are, um, and to change institutions and make force them actually to change. Um, and we are doing that one bit at a time, one bit at a time. Before we were talking about diversity, and then we started talking about inclusion. Now we're talking about changing the these structures and changing these institutions and making sure that not just our voices are heard, but our needs are met. Um, and and you know, I'm a, I'm as much as all of the millions of people uh, who 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 are now a part of the diaspora know that it's, it's something that's ingrained in us, um, and we're not gonna we're not gonna stop. That's that's the thing. We're not gonna stop. And there's going to be a next generation, and the generation after that is going to continue this, this, um, this struggle. Yeah. Okay, I have goosebumps. I'm just going to take a pause here because this is it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Oh, Ansa, that was like a battle cry. I love it. You're listening to Picturing Home, a podcast production by Konsekupan Malmo and Malmo University. You can visit us on Instagram at picturing.home. So Ansar, you and Jasmine had a connection, being that you both can trace your families back to Iraq and that your parents decided to leave for similar reasons. Um, she was born there and she left when she was eight. And you were born here in Sweden, right? Well, actually, almost. I was born in uh, I was born in Syria, in Damascus. Um, my parents uh, moved, or uh, my, they, they didn't move. They were they fled Iraq in the eighties when the uh, when the security apparatus of the Ba'ath Party started rounding up um, everyone who wasn't uh, a Ba'athist. So that's all the all the journalists, all the socialists, all the communists, everyone who was against the the uh, sort of the hegemony of the Ba'ath Party uh, had to flee. And at that time, it was actually a particular moment in history because the membership registry of the Iraqi Communist Party uh, was leaked to the Iraqi security forces, and they started going to the um, the the universities uh, so and and you know had forced people to either uh, write a pledge of allegiance to the Ba'ath Party or face you know imminent death. Actually, it was it was uh, um, so my parents um, and uh, and and many of their um, their peers and compatriots they um, they left Iraq. Um, and it was sort of, the, it was one of the first sort of brain drains. The whole sort of middle class just moved out to Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. Some went to Kuwait, some went to Saudi Arabia. Uh, people, some people went to, uh, you know, London, Paris, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I was born in Syria and uh, my parents lived there for about um eight years from 80 to 88 and then i was born in 88 and then 89 just after the berlin wall fell um and all the 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 borders became porous um so you could actually go through them 
but uh, we, I, as I remember, my parents told me they took a flight from Syria to Russia uh, and from Russia, they took a flight to Sweden. Um, wow. And it was, uh, you can imagine, we were seven, seven people. So oh my, my parents have five kids uh, with one passport. <gasps> wow. So one passport and my father's passport and six pictures. Wow. And that's how you, that's how you to Sweden. Yeah. That's how we came to Sweden. Wow. I mean, it was, it was wonderful kind of listening to you and, and Jasmine, you know, talk about this um, connection to, like you said, to the homeland. Um, and it felt like, you know, despite the fact that your routes to Sweden uh, were different, it felt like home registers for you in similar ways. Um, so let's listen to a clip of Jasmine talking about going home and home in quotation marks. No, I, I, I realized that one, you know, if, if I ever, I like, you know, talk to uh, my cousins, I think because a lot has happened, um, things have changed. So like their frame of reference, like our frame of reference is not the same as, there's not anymore so that's why like they might talk about things or have new like expressions or terms that refer to things that have happened yeah and we don't know we don't, you know we don't know them yet we haven't learned them so it becomes this weird thing that you know might as well be speaking two different languages yeah that thing about speaking two different languages is that something you can relate to Ansar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't have the same frame of reference when I went back to Iraq. I mean, I told my brother before, I was like, uh, I mean, we, we're, we're not going to be considered as Iraqi. Let's just get that out of the way right now. Uh, we are forever going to be immigrants wherever we are, or not immigrants, but foreigners. Um, you know, we, we're stuck between, you know, two worlds and sometimes even three worlds, you know, here in Sweden, we're, we're foreigners, we're refugees, we're immigrants. When we come back to Iraq or when we went back to Iraq for the first time, we were also considered foreigners, you know, um, and that sort of, uh, that's that experience was, ironic in many, many aspects, you know, you're going home to your uh, quote unquote homeland, but you're a foreigner all of a sudden. Um, and that's also a part of the, the, the idea of the diaspora blues. Uh, but yeah, it was a very special experience because I knew that this things was going to happen. Uh, it happened to my dad before that. Um, when he went back, you know, and just after the the regime fell, and uh, and and as a, as a result of the American and British invasion of of Iraq, uh, when he went back there after you know twenty twenty some years being outside of Iraq, even he, he was considered you know a, a foreigner, you know. So it was just a. It was just one of those things where I could just see around the corner and be like, yeah, we're not going to be considered that. So let's not put so much um, emphasis or, or value in that. Let's just create our own space where we just go, you know, I am this 
and I'm going to be this and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, yeah, in so many ways, it feels like a very much kind of a border identity, you know, where you're walking these two lines or three lines sometimes, this kind of tightrope between different modes of belonging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you also, you and Jasmine had an exchange too about that feeling of belonging or, or not belonging and how that affected your friendships and your social circles. And, and also, you know, in your case, I think when you're talking your work, you know, and the sort of drive you have, the inspiration you have in your work. Can you talk about, about how that feeling of belonging or not belonging affected these parts of your life? There's always been the sense of not belonging. I mean, um, and I think a lot of people can attest to that feeling. Uh, but as we are, are understanding uh, our place in this world and what we are tasked with, which is self-actualization, um, what other people think and what other people say or believe is, is their problem. Um, the most important thing is what, what oneself thinks and believes and how we uh, project that onto the world. And through the different mediums, uh, that we chose to do, whether you are a, you know, a doctor or a, a social worker or a journalist or a, a creative director or whatever, um, you carry that luggage with you wherever and it shapes the, the way you feel uh, in different contexts. Um, so before the sort of pandemic started, I've, I had like this, you know, four months of uh, traveling through the Middle East planned. This was the, this was sort of my uh, inspiration uh, trip. And sadly, we I'm not going to be able to do that now. But it's still uh, very much the the aim. And also to go to go back to go back to Iraq the second time and and start doing you know archival research about my family. Uh, you know, go through all the letters that my grandfather sent. Um, and also try to find as much pictures uh, as possible to sort of pitch together uh, our family's history. Because, um, you know, you know, oral stories uh, are a huge part of, of the uh, our, of Iraqi and I would, I would say Arab experience that stories are transmitted orally. And that's why the sort of social gatherings whether, you know, during Ramadan or during all the other sort of days in the year are so, so profoundly important. This is the time when stories are told. This is the time when when history is transmitted. This is the time when when identities are shaped and, and, and the sense of belonging is enhanced. Um, and it is dur during these times that um, I feel like these stories are so, so, so important. So I guess... The idea of belonging, I think for me, borders are becoming, I mean, they are real in a, in a physical sense. But if, if I can, um, if I can sort of rise above that in a sense, and I know there's a privilege in saying that, that I, to rise above a border, but to, to, to rise above it in an imaginary way and see, okay, how, how do I, uh, connect to all of these parts of the world just through my access to a language um, and knowing and speaking Arabic, how can I feel 
uh, a sense of belonging in all of these places, you know. So Sweden in Europe is just a pit stop for me. Uh, my 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 ideas and, and notions uh, stretch far beyond uh, um, my, like this sort of fortress that is Europe. So you also talked about, um, and we've talked about this a lot during the course of Picturing Home about the grounding nature of music. And for this last session, you selected a particular tune. Um, can you tell us about it and why you picked it? And also, can you just kind of describe the song and how it sounds to you? Um, so for our listeners who uh, who are not really familiar with, uh, with the Middle East and the sort of musical output that the Middle East have had since, you know, the early 30s. Um, the, the artist that I chose has a very, very extremely significant role in, you know, Arab identity, uh, both in the region and outside of diaspora, you know, three, four generations after her passing. Um, this is a woman who is considered to be the star of the Middle East, uh, an Egyptian singer uh, whose name is Um Kalthum. And uh, she has inspired not just uh, generations of, of people here or in the Middle East, but people like, you know, Bob Dylan. But just to give an idea of who Um Kalthum is, she, this is a woman who came from... Uh, from one of the poorest areas in the outskirts of Cairo, who um, whose father was a uh, was a uh, was an imam, and she memorized the the Quran when she was just a young girl, and uh, her dad used to uh, dress her up as a boy and enter her into talent shows, um, because she was so amazingly uh, talented singer. And uh, as a 16-year-old, she moved into to, to Cairo, and there she met, you know, some of the uh, some of the greatest, you know, instrumentalists and uh, poets of that time. And that's when she, when her her career sort of um, just took took a, almost a, you know like an astronomical. Uh, <laughs> A swing, and she is a person who have set the the emotional soundtrack for generations and generations after her. And even though I have a, I, I struggle sometimes to understand what she she's singing about. Um, but I've sort of gone back and you know read her lyrics and translations, and it's this uh, this sort of yearning. Um, this insatiable yearning for for longing and belonging and love and affection and uh, it's it's sort of the soundtrack of the emotional baggage of of hundreds of millions of Arab speakers all around the world and it's one of those things that my dad brought with him you know these cassettes used to record used to record the concerts on the cassettes and these cassettes used to circulate and they used to make copies of it and so on and so forth uh, because not all people had access to uh, gramophones or record players and so on. Um, so with the advent of the cassette, these 
she's probably one of the most circulated artists in the world. Her cassettes were sold in, in, in tens, if not hundreds of millions of copies, and they were copied even more than that. Uh, and so one of those things that my dad brought with him to Sweden was cassettes of Um Kathum. Uh, and this is sort of the, the sound that the music that you play, you know, in the evening when, you know, the hustle and bustle of your daily life is sort of coming to an end and you just want to sit back and, you know, have your emotions, you know, pour out. And Um Kathum is the person. I, I wish we could actually play play the tune, but when you when you listen to it now, I mean, do you feel that sort of connection, you know, to your family and to the blood and? Yeah, absolutely. My God, yes, I I feel like I'm a part of like this, uh, this this dynasty. This, uh, but also it taps into the emotions of so many people who. Uh, who have, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, felt like they couldn't express their feelings. Uh, she was the voice for all of these hundreds of millions of people who had carried this enormous amount of emotional luggage. And, you know, because of sort of societal structures or norms that... Uh, um, I would say men in particular were maybe not had the avenue to express those feelings. She was that voice. She was that venue for that this sort of outpouring of, of emotions of grief, but also of rejoice. And, and, and um, I struggle to describe her. Uh, it's just something that uh, you have to, you have to feel, you have to hear uh, to, to know what I'm talking about. Oh, wow. Um, you know, you're talking about her um, during our session and how you can listen to her anywhere and you're sort of, you feel connected and transported at the same time. Um, and that goes for, you know, listening to her in Malmo as well. And I just wanted to talk to you about Malmo. Um, Ansa, during our, our conversation last week, you talked about Malmo as, quote, home home. Um, so I wanted to know, why is that? Like, what makes Malmo so special? I mean, Malmo has always been, it's, it's probably one of the most diverse uh, places in the world. I mean, there's 320,000 people living here, so it's kind of a small city. But there's more than 190 uh, countries represented here. Um, more than half of, the country, uh, half of the city has a migration background. Um, and it was the, the first place where people came to, uh, in the early sixties, uh, with the Greeks who came here as, as, uh, laborers and became also like a focal point for other communities, uh, who also came, uh, subsequently afterwards in the, in the eighties and nineties and in the two thousands, um, it's a place where uh, there's an extremely high diversity. There are um, so many communities have put their their mark on the city. Um, it's home home for me because, I mean, I know every every rock, I know every tree, every bush, I know every street, every corner. 
uh, and it's been a place for me where I've I've many times felt alienated from, but which I you know uh, during our, our our previous session I remember someone said that um, or was it Polly? Uh, it was Hugo. Polly, yeah, Polly, Polly. Yeah. Where she said a belonging is a place where someone can't tell you to leave. Yes. It was so poignant, wasn't it? Absolutely, incredibly. Yeah. And I haven't really thought about that, but this is a place where nobody can tell me to leave. And people have tried. Yeah. <laughs> people have tried and people have said these things. And it's just like, you know what? I actually speak Swedish way better than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and way better than your children does. And there is nothing that you can say. And in fact, if you're not careful, maybe I'll just moving right next to you yeah. uh, <laughs> watch out <laughs> watch out like there's no place in this city where I don't have access to so you better be careful who you're talking to <laughs> thanks again to Ansar Bakir for talking to me today Ansar is project leader of Konskupan Malmö and founder of Shakomako And thanks to you, whoever you are, for listening. This has been another episode of Picturing Home, a podcast production by Konskup on Malmo and Malmo University. Our theme music is by Junior85, written and produced by Tony Higgins.